did some thinking this week about the first time that I ever remember hearing about Jesus. Since I grew up going to Sunday school and, and church, it, it was kind of hard to pinpoint something like that because I pretty much grew up in a church environment. And so I really don't know whether it was the singing of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, or a, a Sunday school teacher putting a paper Jesus on a flannel graph board, or hearing a prayer at the beginning of a meal that ended in Jesus' name. I really can't pinpoint that time that I first heard about Jesus. But I am so grateful that I did. You see, I grew up knowing a lot about Jesus. I learned it in Sunday school. I learned it at home. I learned it in vacation Bible school. I learned it in my grandparents' home. I learned a lot about Jesus. But this knowledge itself didn't save me. You see, it wasn't until what my wife lovingly calls my second freshman year that I came under deep conviction of my sin, that I was a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And in brokenness, I reached up to a God who was always there and received His free gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I placed my faith in Jesus, and my life and my eternity has never been the same. Theoretically, however, I could have known about Jesus all my life, but gone to my grave never knowing him personally. People do it every day. Jesus is so easily accessible, the name of Jesus so frequently heard, and yet people know about him without ever knowing him but we say at least they had the chance there's a church on every corner there are television shows and radio stations that that talk about Jesus all the time there are Christians that work in the same office or go to the same school there are opportunities galore for people to hear about Jesus but the question I want us to consider is What about those who never heard? I mean, we understand the plight of the lost, don't we? We talked about that last week. If you didn't hear it, please go to the website. If if you're able to do that, go to the website. You can click and listen to that because this is kind of the second part of that message as we're taking missions to the next level. If you can't do that, please just let the church office know. We'll be happy to make a CD for you so that you can have a copy of that and listen to it. Because last week really lays the foundation for this week. Because if you remember, we talked about what it meant to be lost. But we also talked about the destiny of the lost. And it's not a pretty picture. In Revelation chapter 20, we pretty much get the culmination of that. Where it says, anyone whose name was not written, not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty serious pretty heartbreaking, a terrible end for anyone. But at least here, they, they, they have the opportunity, right? They, they have the chance. They, Jesus is available here. And we may be able to settle in our minds that at least they had the chance. 
But the question that many of us, from the most educated to the least educated, from the newest believer to the one who's been around for generations, we still wrestle with the issue of what about those who've never heard? What about those who haven't had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus, to hear the gospel presented to them, to have a Christian witness? What about them? What happens to them? Does God have a a different plan for them? Does God have an alternate means of salvation for those who've never heard of Jesus? Is there a special exemption? Are they grandfathered in? Again, we can have all kinds of ideas of of our own. We can come up with all kinds of theories on our own, but we're going to do much better today if we kind of stick with what, what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them there because this is a, a portion of Scripture that I would like you to highlight, to underline, to, to make sure that you focus on and come back to and wrestle with these verses and the ones that follow because they speak powerfully to this very question. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these words, your truth, so that our beliefs, our theology, might be shaped by your word and that our hearts might be burdened by this truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we're going to be talking about the budget in a meeting after the service this morning, let me throw out some numbers. These aren't pleasant numbers. In the world, there are 6.9 billion people, give or take a few million. Of those 6.9, about 2 billion are professed Christians, about 5 billion then non-Christians. But among those who are non-believers, approximately 1.6 billion people in this world have never heard the name of Jesus, had a Christian witness at all. What about them? What about their eternity? The 1.6 billion who have never heard. Would God send them to hell simply because they've never heard about Jesus? Let's wrestle with that. I'd like us to consider some biblical truths this morning that help us to understand. And the first truth is this. People are not condemned to hell for not believing in Jesus. Now you go, wait a minute. That's not what I've learned in church all my life. And, and we keep talking about Jesus. So are, are, are you changing your mind, Pastor? Are you, are you shifting a little bit in your theology? And the answer is, is absolutely not. People go to hell not because they don't believe in Jesus, but because they are sinners and their sin separates them from God. Now think about this. We need, we need to wrestle with this. Why do people go to hell? 
because they are sinners in need of a Savior. But they are sinners. And that sin separates them from God. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Iniquities are sins. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin is something that we often redefine and minimize. It is not such a big deal. We goof up, we make a mistake, we err. We try not to use the word sin because it is just so ugly. Well, if you think the word sin is ugly, you ought to read what God thinks about sin itself. You see, God is holy, and sin is an affront to God. It is repugnant to God. It is the antithesis of who God is, and therefore sin brings judgment. Your sin has separated you from God. That is the judgment. It separates us from God. We read from the beginning, God's wrath is revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And we like to think about God's love and sing about God's love and think about God's grace and sing about God's grace and meditate on those things. But we need to understand that this very same God who is defined as love, God is love, this very same God is a God who has a wrath. Now, God loves you. God loves everyone in the world. He loves all of his creation. But God hates sin. It is utterly repugnant to God. And God's wrath, his judgment, will come upon sin. Why? Because sin is rebellion, not only against the will of God, but against the character of God. Remember, go all the way back to Genesis. Says in Genesis that you and I were created in the image of God. And then along comes sin. And what sin does, it distorts, it twists, it mars, it shatters the image of God in us. Can you imagine the heartbreak it is to God to have created men and women in his image. And yet they choose to rebel. They choose to go their own way. They choose to live by their own standards. They choose to reject God, turn their back on God, ignore God and treat him as if he's nothing. God hates sin because it separates you who are made to be in relationship to God. It separates you from him. Can you imagine? Let's imagine you parents who have a child. If someone comes into that child's life and begins to pull that child away from you and begins to to introduce that child to things in your life, whether it be drugs or sex or whether it be uh, any kind of, of aberrant behavior or begins to pull that child away from you so that child no longer has the same affection, the same love, the relationship is broken. You know, you, some of you know what that does to you. Imagine what it does to God who created us in his image. To have us willingly choose to walk away, to reject him. Sin separates us 
from God. And therefore, it is repugnant to God. This is the way A.W. Pink writes it in The Attributes of God. He defines God's wrath this way. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. God detests all unrighteousness because it mars and distorts the image of God in you. It is an affront to his character for he is holy and he is righteous. Sin separates us from God. Ultimately, that's our problem. Whether we live here in the United States where there's a church on every corner or whether we live in the deepest, darkest jungle somewhere where no missionary has ever penetrated, the problem is still sin. And sin still separates. There you go. Okay, I'm trying to get my mind around this. I'm trying to, trying to get, get a good image of this. Ray Pritchard has a wonderful illustration of this that I think can help us as we digest this and understand just the just what this image is, what this picture is. Let's suppose that there's a farmer in Thailand who gets sick. This farmer goes to his doctor and one of the better doctors around and the doctor examines him and comes back and says, I've got some bad news for you. You've got an incurable form of cancer and you have a very short time to live. Let's also suppose that the University of Chicago On that very same day, their medical team, their researchers come up with a cure for that very same kind of cancer. But the farmer in Thailand never hears about it. The farmer in Thailand never knows about it. What's going to happen to the farmer? He's going to die. Why is he going to die? Because he had cancer. The fact that he didn't get the cure just seals his fate. But the cancer was his problem. Cancer was what killed him. And folks, the sin is what separates us from God. The sin is what kills us. It is critical that we realize that sin separates us from God and that it is our sin that condemns us to an eternity apart from God in hell. We might not prefer to think about like that. We'd like to overlook it. We'd like to discount it. God is holy and righteous and just. And there's only one way he's going to deal with our sin. And that is to judge it. Now, before you get all depressed, let's move on. I'm here to tell you there's good news at the end, so stick with me. Secondly, if ignorance were the ticket to heaven, then we do the world a great disservice by telling them about Jesus at all. Now think about this. If it's true, that person, that farmer in Thailand who's never heard of Jesus, that person in the jungle who's never heard of Jesus, that person in the desert who's never heard of Jesus, if it's true that if they don't know about Jesus, that they get in automatically, then by all means we shouldn't tell them, right? Let's avoid that like the plague. But what did Jesus say to us? Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if it were true that people who didn't know about Jesus were going to be saved anyway, 
then the Great Commission may have sounded something like this. Whatever you do, don't tell anybody about me. I'm serious about this, boys. Don't tell a soul. Because God's plan to save the lost is ignorance. As long as they don't know, they're fine. So don't say anything. Let's just keep it our big secret. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus said, go and make disciples. Tell them about me. Baptize them. Teach them everything that I've said. If we adopted the line of thinking that, it was, that not knowing would get you in anyway, then what I would recommend as pastor is that we cease to have services immediately. That whatever, we stop sending any funds to a mission board. As a matter of fact, let, let's go ahead and take our Bibles after the service and create a big bonfire out here. Let's burn those things. And let's toss the cross in while we're at it. And any of you who are wearing cross jewelry, let's get rid of that. And let's begin to change this building into something else, but certainly not a place to worship and be equipped to reach the world. If ignorance is God's plan, then by all means do not tell anyone who doesn't know about Jesus about him. The third truth. People are without excuse for not recognizing and acknowledging God. Romans 1 tells us that people suppress the truth about God. That truth that should be plain to them, they suppress it. It's not just that they ignore it, they intentionally push it away. God says that two things ought to be crystal clear about God's invisible qualities. And those two things are, first, His eternal power. You should be able to look at the stars in the sky. You should be able to hear the waves crashing on the shore. You should be able to feel the gentle breeze blowing on your cheek and recognize that there is a God who did all this. That should be evident. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the second way that God's invisible qualities should be seen are through His divine nature. We should be able to recognize His divine nature. Now, how? Because God has made it plain, first of all, through His creation, but secondly, through your consciences. Think about this. First of all, through His creation, you should be able to recognize it. Secondly, you should be able to recognize it through you're conscious. There's something inside you. We've already talked about nature. Okay? But let's talk about what's going on inside you. There's something inside us, because we are created in the image of God, that makes us recognize there's something more to life. This isn't all there is. And that's why in every culture, you find some kind of supreme being, some kind of deity, some kind of God in every culture. That's why atheism doesn't catch on. There are a few of them, but most people, when they think, start to think about it, they're going, I don't know. There's something in them that says, no, there's just got to be more than this. 
And, and, and scholars and theologians through the years have tried to put this in words that we can understand. For instance, the, uh, the great thinker Pascal said that inside each of us there is an infinite abyss that can only be filled by God. An infinite abyss. There's a hole that can only be filled by God, and we know it. Innately, we know it's there. Augustine, in one of his prayers, prayed this, Lord, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. There's something in us that says God must be there. And more than that, he must be a good God. Many of you know the story of Helen Keller. Helen Keller, at 19 months old, had an illness that resulted in her being blind and deaf. Can you imagine living in that world? Blind and deaf. And it was, a really, it was a real struggle to try to communicate with her. Finally, a lady named Ann Sullivan. The picture you have there, Helen is the one uh, in the foreground, Ann Sullivan in the background. Ann was brought in to teach her. And it was a process, a long, arduous process of trying to break through, trying to figure out how do you penetrate this world of darkness and, and soundlessness? How do you penetrate that? Eventually, Ham was able to figure it out and begin to, to bring Helen Keller into this world and the ability to communicate in this world so that she, her life ended up having an impact on so many others. One of the things that she did in trying to teach was that she would pour water on Helen's hand and then she would spell in her hand the letters water until she was able to put the, what it was and the word together. And, and slowly... Anne and Helen began to build a vocabulary so that they could actually communicate. One of the things that was on Anne Sullivan's heart was to teach Helen Keller about God. And so when she had built sufficient vocabulary, she spelled in Helen's hand, G-O-D. And Helen came to understand what that meant. And Helen's response was this, Oh, is that what you call him? I always knew he was there, but I didn't know what to call him. Inside each of us, God has placed a yearning for him. And we are without excuse for rejecting that. God has placed something within us that pulls us back to him. We can suppress it. We can reject it. Or we can pursue it, which leads us to the fourth truth this morning, and that is this. God reveals himself more fully to those who seek him. One of the best stories of this is found in in the book of Acts. There's an Ethiopian who's been to Jerusalem who's traveling back to his native land, and he is actually, as he's going along, reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it, and he's seeing the words, but he doesn't get it. And the Holy Spirit's obviously working in him. He's got a desire to know God, to really know God. And so what does God do? Well, we actually find out what God does in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. 
And I'm going to put these words up on the screen. Just look at these. Look at this story. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Didn't tell him why. He just said go. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Parents, you can explain that to your children when you get home. Who was an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the rest of the story is that Philip begins there with Isaiah and he shares with him who Jesus is. And the Ethiopian believes, places faith in Jesus and they stop the chariot and they find water beside the road. I don't know whether it's an oasis or a ditch, but you know what? It didn't matter. The Ethiopian wanted to be baptized as a symbol of his new faith, his new life in Jesus Christ. Here was a man who had a heart to know more of God. And God found a way to get the truth, the saving truth to this man. There's another story in in Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to show the the verses on the screen. You can go back and read this, and I'd encourage it. There was a, a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile. And remember, the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't associate. They didn't get along. They didn't, they didn't fit, especially Jews who, were, who paid attention to their faith anyway. They didn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. But this Cornelius wanted to know more about God. He had a heart to know God. And so, what does God do? God ends up giving a vision to Peter. That was an unusual vision. It was, a, it was a, a, a vision of a sheep being lowered down from heaven. And on that sheep were all kinds of animals. Some were clean animals, which were the ones that the Jews were allowed to touch and to eat. But others were unclean animals like pigs that they couldn't eat. And then he hears a voice as he's viewing this grouping of animals. It says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Peter argued. He said, oh, you know, God, I've never, I've never touched anything unclean. I'm certainly not going to put it in my mouth. And then God says this. What I've declared clean, you shouldn't say is unclean. In other words, it was God's way of saying something's getting ready to happen and you're going to think it's unclean, but you need to know I'm calling you to this. And it did because some guys from Cornelius' house showed up calling for Peter. Peter, heeding the vision that God gave him, went down to Cornelius' house and began with the little knowledge that Cornelius had and explained to him who Jesus was and what he did for them. And Cornelius and his household believed in Jesus and they were baptized. You see, God is not capricious. God is not hiding his truth. If we respond to the light that we're given... If all we know is that there must be a God because of what I see in nature, there must be God because of what I feel in here, and I can know something about this God, then God God takes that little 
and that desire, and he gives more light. This is the way the Apostle Paul put it in Acts 17. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. In other words, God knows about that farmer in Thailand. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. God placed it in our hearts so that we would be hungry for him, reach out to him, and find him. There are people all over the world right at this moment who are under deep conviction. They look at the stars in the sky. They look at the sand on the ground. They hear the birds singing in the trees. And they recognize that someone did this. They feel within them a pulling, a drawing, a conviction that they have an obligation to this God. They want to know Him. But how will they? This is what the Bible says about that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can, they, how can anyone preach to them unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How will the farmer in Thailand hear about Jesus? How will that person in the cave in Afghanistan hear about Jesus? They will hear because God's people are faithful to God's call. We think this world is messed up, and it is. But I'm here to tell you right now that God is working in the hearts and the minds and the lives of men and women and children all over this world to draw them to himself. Jesus put it this way. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. They're Muslims. When we think about witnessing to a Muslim, that may be worse than thinking about witnessing to a Jehovah Witness, right? I mean, that, that's, got to be, that's got to be the ultimate is sharing with the Muslims. You know what God is doing to prepare the hearts and the lives of Muslims to receive Jesus Christ? He's sending Jesus images of Jesus to them in a vision, showing up in their dreams so that these people, even Muslim clerics, are trying to find a believer who will tell them about this Jesus who showed up in their dreams. God's at work. And God calls us to come alongside and work with him. I believe that if a person, because of what Scripture says, if a person does not know Jesus Christ, whether they live in Greene County or they live in a place where they've never heard of Jesus at all, if they die without him, they die without Jesus that person faces an eternity apart from God in hell. I don't see a plan B. And if there's no plan B, 
and you and I are plan A, then what are we going to do about it? How are they going to hear if there's no one there to tell? And how is somebody going to be there to tell if there's no one that sends them? That's why I wanted to commend you for what you did for our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That's why I want to commend you for what many of you do independently for ministry and missions organizations. But it's also why I want to encourage you to take missions to the next level. You need to be involved by praying. Some of you know that we adopted an unreached people group some years back called the Rajputs. The Rajputs in northern India. They used to be like the the knights of India. I mean, they were nobility riding around India. And now they sell bicycles on the street. But you know what? They don't know Jesus. And they need him. Many of them never heard the name of Jesus. Can I ask you? Those of you who know that there are adopted people group, when was the last time you prayed for them? When was the last time you took the little uh, prayer request in the handout, in your, in your bulletin, and just spent a few minutes lifting them up? Where's the passion? Where's the vigor? Where's the desire to see those who don't know Jesus come to know Him? We need to keep on giving. But i got to tell you, writing a check's one thing, and I, I want to encourage you, we need to be as generous, as generous, as generous as we can for missions causes. But the Great Commission doesn't tell us to write a check. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Now, you can say, well, he was just, you know, kind of talking to those 11 guys. He wasn't really talking to me. But if you say that, you're lying to yourself. You and I have the personal responsibility to share Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our coworkers, with our family and friends and around the world. We started talking about three weeks ago, taking our ministry and taking our personal lives to the next level. I'm here to ask you, what is the next level for you in missions? Is it praying? Is it giving? Is it going? I want us to be a church that strongly supports missions in all three ways. Sometimes we just choose B. If I'll just give, then I'll be done with it. But you're not. Keep giving. I want to encourage you as you take your, your consideration of missions to the next level, that you strongly consider daily praying for those who are lost, especially those you know. I mean, if, 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 if you don't have a compassion for the people you know who are lost... I can't expect you to have a compassion for the Rajputs. Start there. And what about your going? Well, we've got probably the big enough in our crew to go to Dominican Republic already. And certainly you could give to help that. I mean, nobody's going to argue with that. But would you consider going across the street? Would you consider going to your golfing buddy or your shopping buddy or your workout buddy? And just sitting down and, 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 and I don't... This is not the way you do it. You, you don't take your Bible and, and go up to somebody you think is lost and say, Wham! Let me tell you about Jesus. That's not how you do it. 
well, I mean, if it works, okay. But I'm thinking probably the best thing to do is for me to find somebody that I know and love and say, listen, something wonderful happened to me that changed my life. If you got a few minutes, I could tell you about it. Because I want to introduce you to the person who changed not only my life here, my relationships here, but who gave me hope that when this life is over, that I will live with him in heaven forever. If you can think of a better way to do it, by all means. But you have a story to tell. And it's a story about a man who died on the cross for you, who was not merely a man, but who was the son of God. You know that wrath of God that's being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of man? This is where God's love and God's wrath come together. For the punishment that you and I should have paid for our sin was paid for us by Jesus Christ because God loves you and he wants you to be his.